Jude 3 and Colossians 1. Jude 3 and Colossians 1. How many of you understand that we're living in interesting times? Um, anyone here heard that uh, the Pope resigned? Anyone hear this? Um, I was talking with my father yesterday, and he told me I should apply for the job. And uh, I told him I did that once. I was in Rome. The, the last Pope's funeral was on Saturday, and uh, I was there on Monday at uh, St. Peter's. And so I went to the information desk and asked for an application. They looked at me like I was crazy. I thought I was, was wondering what would be on that. Um, I, I felt like this is a very important time in history. And when we look at what's going on in the Roman church with, with the Pope resigning... I thought it would be good for us to just scripturally look at the office of the Pope. Because um, you're going to have a lot of opportunities to discuss this with people. And so let's, let's look at why we're doing this. Go to Jude 3. Jude 3. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the... What's it say? Common salvation. Okay, so there's only one kind of salvation that's common to everyone who gets saved. All right, do you see that? There are not many different types of salvation. There are not many ways to Christ. There are not many ways to heaven. There's only one way. It's common. All right. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you, that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was, what's it say? Once delivered unto the saints. So we are to earnestly contend for the faith. Now, I do understand that in today's climate of Christianity, that being a contentious Christian is not popular. But... The book of Jude was written so that we would earnestly contend for the faith. That means that there is a faith that needs to be contended for. Is that right? Go with me to Colossians chapter 1. Look at verse 14. In whom, speaking of Jesus Christ, we have redemption through His blood even the forgiveness of sins. So where does the forgiveness of sins come from? The blood of Jesus Christ. Is that right? Is that, is that very clear there? Simple statement, very clear. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? For by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. So this is Jesus Christ. He's the head of everything. Is that right? Everything was created by Him and for Him, and by Him all things consist. So we know that He upholds all things by the word of His power. 
Now look at the next verse. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. And Lord, we do live in, in troublesome times. We live in uh, a time of turmoil. We live in a time of religious um, apostasy. We live in a time of political corruption, of economic upheaval. And yet you know everything that's going on. You knew of all of this before the world was ever established. And in all of that plan, you gave us a job to do. And a part of that job was to earnestly contend for the faith. So, Father, help us today to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I want us to look at a couple of things. Um, first of all, why study this subject? Why look at this subject? Because I might even have you raise your hands, but I won't. I'll ask this question. But you don't have to raise your hand. How many of you get nervous when Pastor Jim decides to discuss a topic like this? And I know that there are some that are saying, Oh, Lord, please help him don't be mean. Please help him not be mean. Well, I don't want to be mean about any of it. How many of you have people that you love that belong or are part of the Roman Catholic system? Raise your hand. Amen. Me too. Me too. The last thing in the world we'd want to do is make them angry or hurt them, hurt their feelings, keep them from coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. We, we love them. We love them. Withholding the truth is not love. The Bible says, but speaking the truth in love, then we'll grow up into the head, even into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Speaking the truth in love does that. But there's, there are two components to that. Number one, it's speaking the truth. And number two, it has to be in love. So if we're hateful or demeaning or sarcastic or any of those things, that's not love. That's not love. So what I want us to do, why are we going to study this? Because it's very much in the news. Uh, and, and let me tell you what happens at times like this. The um, uh, people like Laura and I, we enjoy watching the Fox News channel. Well, the Fox News Channel is predominantly Roman Catholic. How many of you have discovered that? You've watched it. They have Roman Catholic priests on there talking about the faith, defending the faith many times, or their faith. Um, and so what will happen is people will they'll begin to have, have stories, whether it's in the New York Times, which I've read several New York Times articles this week, and others that will talk about the history of Catholicism, the history of the papacy. And so you have history... And people in this time of change, they're looking for something that is rooted and secure. And so that draws a lot of people into Catholicism. Secondly, the pageantry. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. When you walk into St. Peter's Basilica, you can't imagine. It's funny. They have marks on the floor that say, this is how far St. Paul's Cathedral would come. You could fit St. Paul's Cathedral inside St. Peter's. They want you to know that. It's interesting. And it's the beauty of it. You can't imagine how beautiful it is. There's no way to describe it. The greatest artists in history went into to building that building. 
Um, and so people are drawn by the history, they're drawn by the beauty, and they're drawn by the tradition. The tradition. Um, tradition is very comforting to people. Uh, the, the best way to raise peaceful children is to have consistency in the home. Is that right? So the tradition of the Catholic system provides uh, safety for people in a world that's just a world of upheaval. And you see many people turning to Catholicism. Someone like Newt Gingrich has become a Catholic. Um, Even this week, I learned that my cousin, who grew up in an evangelical church, he married a Catholic young lady, and now they are, he, he has converted to Roman Catholicism. So when we see all of this happening, this is a time of great proselytization, of evangelization for the Catholic Church. And you all recognize that. So we as believers, we as Bible believers, we need to be able to give a biblical response to what's going on in the world today and in Catholicism. So let's, let's dive into this. Uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, who became Pope, Pius, or Pope Benedict XVI, he just resigned. Now, this is a really significant event because he is the first pope in 600 years to resign. 600 years. Well, the reason for that, the last pope who resigned, it was during a time of of division in the Catholic Church, and there were three popes all at the same time. So the one pope, Gregory, he was convinced to resign so that a true pope could be voted in. So really, three popes resigned at the same time, but that's not listed in the literature because in the Catholic system, there can only be one sitting in the chair of Peter, but there were three. How many of you see a little bit of duplicity in that story? And so you have to dig, you always have to dig a little deeper when you see the world writing about religious history. You always have to dig a little deeper to find out what's going on. What words are they using? How are they defining these things? What do they mean by these things? Before that, there was a a pope that had resigned. and I won't go into too much of the story, but uh, he was 20 years old and he had resigned. No, no, there there was a pope he had resigned. He he didn't want to be the pope. So he was a pope for a month or two and he just resigned, walked out and started walking in the mountains and hiding and he was going to get on a boat and go to Greece, just take off. So the next pope had him arrested. He thought this is a bad idea. So the next pope had him arrested, put him in prison, and he died in prison. Um, so the rest of the popes didn't want to resign because somebody might kill him. And that's what happened. That's why the popes never resigned. You were pope until death. You know, uh, just couldn't get out. Um, so how many of you saw me filtering right there? Did you see me filtering? Okay. Now, I want to give a, a, a brief overview of the papacy. Um, We were asked, we had a discussion about this in our Sunday school class this morning. Uh, Who was the first pope? No one really knows. Of course, who does Catholicism say was the first pope? Peter. Peter. All right, we're going to talk about that in a minute. But beyond that, there's not really a great history of who the popes were. The first man to claim to sit in the chair of Peter was a man named Stephen, and that was in 254. He was the Bishop of Rome from 254 to 257. So in 254, he said, I'm sitting in the chair of Rome. He was the first person to say that. So from the time Peter lived until 254, no one else claimed to be sitting in the chair of Peter. 
So the, the claims of Catholicism to, to, to a succession of popes from Peter, it begins in a very dubious way. They, they don't have a historical uh, uh, reference for that or, or support. Uh, among the church fathers, the writings of the church fathers, there's no authority for uh, a pope going all the way back into the early church. No one wrote about that. No, there was no understanding of Peter being the head of the church. That, that, that was all a later invention. So historically, um, they really don't have a, a leg to stand on. It's just there, there isn't anything about that in history. Um, so where did this idea of papal infallibility come from? How many of you have heard of papal infallibility? You've heard of that. And now, let's be clear. That sounds like the, the president, doesn't it? Let's be clear. Um, when... We speak of papal infallibility, Protestants or Baptists, a lot of times we make a mistake when we talk about that. Papal infallibility doesn't mean that the Pope will never make a mistake. That's not what that means. What it means, though, is that when he speaks on doctrine or morals, that that teaching is infallible, that the Holy Spirit will help him. I, I, I watched a YouTube video of a Catholic priest explaining papal infallibility, and he said the Pope is like the umpire. But he is God's umpire. He, is, he said Protestants will hold to the Scripture as their authority, but the Scripture is not alive. God wanted to have a living representative on earth, and that's the Pope. And so that Pope needed to be absolutely perfect, and the Holy Spirit helps him to be absolutely perfect when he writes or speaks about doctrine. That's the teaching of papal infallibility. What's interesting about that, though, is papal infallibility has not been a teaching of the Catholic Church since its beginning. Papal infallibility became a dogma in 1870. How many of you find that interesting? So here's what happened. We've talked much at our church about the rise of liberalism in theology in the middle to late 1800s. Well, the Catholic Church had that same fight. They were having that same fight. And so you had uh, the, the Pope, and this Pope was fighting against liberalism, and he was very anti-Semitic. He hated the Jews, just hated the Jews. And so what he wanted to do was he wanted to maintain his authority. And so listen to what he wrote. This is the, it's called the Petrine Doctrine, and that is that the, his authority goes back to uh, Peter. And so this is Pius IX, and he, uh, he called a council, Vatican I. How many of you have heard of Vatican II? Vatican I was in 1870, and that's where papal infallibility, this concept, came from. So here's what he wrote. And so, supported by the... And this is the, the, the statement of the council, not just this particular pope, but this, he was the pope who uh, uh, administered this. And so, supported by the clear witness of Holy Scripture and adhering to the manifest and explicit decrees, both of our predecessors, the Roman pontiffs, and of the general councils, we promulgate anew the definition of the Ecumenical Council of Florence, which must be believed by all faithful Catholics, it must be believed by all faithful, uh, by all faithful Christians, namely, that the apostolic see and the Roman pontiff hold a worldwide primacy. 
and that the Roman pontiff is the successor of blessed Peter, the prince of the apostles, true vicar of Christ, head of the whole Christian, or head of the whole church, and father and teacher of all Christian people. To him in blessed Peter, full power has been given by our Lord Jesus Christ to tend, rule, and govern the universal church. They went on. That the Roman pontiff, when he speaks ex cathedra, that is, when in discharge of his office, and ex cathedra means from the chair. So when he's, okay, you young, young people, look up here at me. I know it's hard when I read stuff, but stay plugged in. There's going to be a test. All right? Um, so when he speaks ex cathedra, that means in his official capacity as the Pope. Uh, in other words, when the Pontifus Maximus speaks in his alleged apostolic authority, his words are inerrant scripture and cannot be changed. But if anyone, which may God advert, or God avert, presume to contradict this definition, let him be anathema. Now, what does that mean? When the church pronounces someone anathema, that means they're damned to hell. And what they're teaching is, is that there's no salvation outside of the church. The only way that anyone can have salvation is through the church. And so if the church condemns you to hell, you cannot go to heaven. And I think this is an interesting contradiction, that those who don't like it, when I speak like this, when I identify the errors of the Roman Catholic system, and you know that there are many evangelicals who are offended when you do that. How many of you recognize that? Right? They have nothing to say about, in 1870, the First Vatican Council saying that if you disagree with papal infallibility, you're damned to hell. How many of you see that as a double standard in hypocrisy? Right? Because here's the idea. We can't miss this. And this is what, this was what happens with truth. The acceptance of one truth is the rejection of everything else. The acceptance of one idea is the rejection of every contradictory idea if we're going to hold to truth. Is that right? So papal infallibility was established by Pope Pius IX in 1870. But the idea of it goes back farther than that. I want you to think about this title of the vicar of Christ. And what I always try to do is I don't want to get Protestant or Baptist definitions of these things. I like to allow the, the Roman Catholics to define what they believe themselves. So here's the definition of the vicar of Christ from the Roman Catholic Encyclopedia. It's called the Catholic Encyclopedia. And it says this. Vicar of Christ, a title of the Pope implying his supreme and universal primacy, both of honor and of jurisdiction over the Church of Christ. Okay, now look at Colossians 1, 18. Speaking of Jesus Christ, and he is the head of the body, the church. So this is what we need to understand. When the Pope is called the Vicar of Christ, what they are saying is that he reigns in Christ's stead on this earth. That he is the physical representative of Jesus Christ on this earth. And I could give you um, 
evidence from Catholic literature for over a thousand years that says that the Pope is Jesus Christ. The Pope is God. That's what they believe. So now let's go to Romans chapter 14 and see what the Bible says about this. I'm sorry, John 14. You'll forgive me if I'm a little disjointed this morning. The subject is so big that what I'm trying to do is just pull bits of it out to talk about with you this morning. John chapter 14. Look at verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father. And he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Even the Pope. The vicar of Christ. Who did Jesus Christ send in his place when he left? The Holy Spirit. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more. But ye shall see me, because I live. Ye shall live also. Now, how many of you believe Jesus Christ lived? Died on the cross, rose from the dead for our sins. Is that right? Then He ascended to the Father. He said this. Go to John chapter 16. John 16. Look at verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away... The Pope will not come unto you. What does it say? The Comforter. The Comforter. The Comforter will not come unto you. But after, if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father, and ye see me... What's it say? No more. Hmm. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. Alright, so when Jesus Christ left, He said, you will not see me anymore. The Bible talks about, blessed are those who not seeing believe. Is that right? We don't see Jesus Christ. How many of you want to see Him? I do. I can't wait to see what He looks like. I can't wait to fall at His feet and worship Him physically. But right now we worship Him in spirit and in truth. So Jesus Christ said, when I leave, I will send you my representative. And that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. The Holy Spirit will convince of sin. The Holy Spirit will bring judgment and teach you judgment, right? So what is the purpose of the Pope? To take the Holy Spirit's place in the world. 
It's interesting. The Bible says that if any man hath not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. The Bible says there's many spirits that are gone out into the world. There's only one Holy Spirit. You see, when we look to a man for direction, instead of to the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit through His Word, that is the biblical definition of idolatry. See, we don't need a man to be in charge of us because we have a head, and that's Jesus Christ. And somebody might say, well, then what's your job? Well, I am your head. You have to listen to me. Come and kiss my feet. I'll be at the back after the service. And if you come and see me, I will forgive your sins for you. Who forgives sins? Jesus Christ. What's my job? What is my job? Let's see if Peter can tell us. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5. Some of you who remember our study through First Peter already know the comment I'm going to make here, but I'll make it again. Look at First Peter chapter 5, verse 1. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder. Do you see that? If Peter was the first pope, he didn't know it. What's an elder? It's a pastor. It's a pastor. Hey, you pastors, I am also a pastor. That's what he's writing as. I am one of you. I'm not commanding you. I'm not over you. I'm one of you. Is that what it says? And look look at what he goes on to say. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Remember, there are two events that dominated Peter's life. His denial of Jesus Christ at his death, the witness of his sufferings, and his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. So he saw his death and he saw Jesus Christ glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's dealing with that here. He says, so here's what he says for them to do. Take dominion of the flock of God. What's he say? Feed the flock of God which is under you. How many of you think the words of Scripture are important? Is there any idea of Peter being over these people? No. So here's, here's my job. My job as, an, as the elder, pastor, teacher of this church. Here's my job. Feed you. And not feed those that are under me, that are among you. You see the difference? Words of Scripture are important. Then look at what it says. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being, what's it say? Lords over God's, God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. You know what one of the Pope's names is? Lord Pope. It's his name. Lord Pope. 
How many of you see that, that scripturally it's an unbiblical office? It, scripturally, it's an unbiblical office. Um, one thing that I think is interesting, the, the Bible calls Jesus Christ the shepherd and bishop of our souls. So if a man is an archbishop, then he has a position a step higher than that of Jesus Christ. These are blatantly unbiblical ideas. They are idolatrous and wicked. Embarrassingly so. So let's deal with this concept of Peter being the first pope. Go with me to uh, Matthew chapter 16. There are really two primary passages that are used to defend Peter as being the first pope. And this is one of them, Matthew chapter 16. A couple of the reasons that I know Peter wasn't the pope. Um, one of them is because he had a mother-in-law. And you would not have a mother-in-law without being married if you have any sense at all. Secondly, Peter in another place said, Silver and gold have I none. It's another way we know he was not a pope. But let's get technical. Verse 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, and some Elias, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. and The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. All right? So what's going on here in the text? Well, Jesus Christ says, Who do, who do men say that I am? Some people say that he's John the Baptist, Jeremiah, Elijah, or some great prophet. Jesus says to the disciples, But who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks for the whole group. And he says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus tells him that this is actually a revelation from God, that this statement is a revelation from God on who Jesus Christ is. And then he says, you're Peter, but upon this rock I'll build my church. Upon what rock? The confession that he just made. The foundation of the church is the confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's the foundation of the church. And let's make sure that we understand this very clearly. Every one of the church fathers, all the way through Augustine, believed that that was talking about the confession that Peter had made. None of them believed that they were establishing, that Jesus was saying he was going to build the church on Peter. But based on this, they say that he is the head of the apostles. Well, let's just read on a little bit. I want you to notice something. Verse 21. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto His disciples how that He must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took Him 
and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Well, if we make him the head of the apostles in the previous verses, then we must make him the head of the apostates here. And I would say he's neither. He was a man in the middle of everything that was going on. God gave him the revelation about who Jesus Christ was. And then he got in the flesh and denied the resurrection of Christ. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. He denied that. And so what did God do? He said, Peter, when you're converted, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. Feed my sheep. Peter, lovest thou me more than these, the other disciples? Do you love me more than they do? Of course, Jesus, I know you. Feed my sheep. He had denied Jesus three times. He had to confess Christ three times. He's trying to restore Peter. Notice, when, the, when Jesus rose from the dead, he told the, the, the ladies at the tomb, he said, go and tell the disciples and Peter that I'm risen. Why is Peter singled out? Because he denied him. He wasn't one of the disciples anymore. He'd left the faith. Isn't God's grace and mercy and restoration wonderful? Amen. Amen. But when you look at the whole thing, Peter was not the foundation of the church. He wasn't that at all. If Peter was the foundation of the church, then Paul lied. Look at Romans 15, 20. All right, who's the book of Romans written to? Romans. All right, where do Romans live? Rome. Isn't Bible interpretation hard? You've got to go to school to learn how to do this. Look at verse 20. Yea, so have I strived to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation. If Peter had founded the church at Rome, why is he not addressed in the book of Romans when Paul says he's not going to build on another man's foundation? Isn't that interesting? So if Peter was the head of the church at Rome, if he was the founder of the church at Rome, then the apostle Paul, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, didn't acknowledge it. And then he says he's not going to build on another man's foundation. So what's that saying? Paul didn't go to a place and work on a church that someone else, another man, had started. He didn't do that. And he didn't do that here. Amen? It's very, very simple. There are so many other evidences that Peter was not in Rome. Um, in Acts chapter 15, Peter is in Jerusalem. We know that. Acts 15, Peter's in Jerusalem. That's, a, that's a, between 40 and 50 A.D. Between 40 and 50 A.D. We know that there was a persecution in Rome at that same time. We have historians, the historian Suetonius, a Roman historian that talks about the Christians being kicked out. 
Peter was not in Rome when that happened. He could not have been the pastor at Rome when that persecution took place. Couldn't have been. We, historically, it is impossible for Peter to have been the first pope. And then, let's look at some more scriptural evidence. Go with me to 1 Peter. Again, God, Holy Spirit, inspiring Peter, and look at what he says. Now remember, he said to Peter, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church. Let's see if Peter is that rock. Verse 1. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby, if so be that ye have if so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also as what's it say? Lively stones are built up in a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Whereunto also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Sion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner." and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word being disobedient, whereunto they were appointed, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So what do we have here? We have the one who's supposed to be the rock of the church saying, no, 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 no. There's a rock. That rock is Jesus Christ. I'm a lively stone. Jesus Christ has made you all lively stones who believe in Jesus Christ. But the church is built on the rock of Jesus Christ. Can I ask you a question? Why is there any controversy at all about this? Not because people are discerning the truth of Scripture, but because there is a system that has been established that is a man-made system that's much easier to submit to than the truth of the Word of God. That's where it comes from. Let me read a couple of things to you. I want to read the rest of the definition of the Vicar of Christ. A title of the Pope implying his supreme and universal primacy, both of honor and of jurisdiction over the Church of Christ. It is founded on the words of the Divine Shepherd to St. Peter, Feed my lambs, feed my sheep by which he constituted the prince of the apostles, guardian of his entire flock in his own place. That's in the place of Jesus. Thus making him his vicar or substitute and fulfilling the promise made in Matthew 16. In the course of the ages, other vicarial designations have been used for the Pope as vicar of St. Peter and even vicar of the apostolic see. But the title Vicar of Christ is more expressive of his supreme headship of the church on earth, which he bears in virtue of the commission of Christ and with vicarial power derived from him. Thus, Innocent III appeals for his power to remove bishops to the fact that he is the Vicar of Christ. Now remember who Innocent III was. Um, 
Uh, Wiley, the Protestant historian, calls him the vilest toad to ever squat on the throne of Rome. Innocent III is the man who killed the Albigenses in the Albigensian crusade. He, he had his representative and St. Dominic. Anyone heard of the Dominican friar, St. Dominic? St. Dominic was the founder of the Inquisition. So what he would do is he would go into an area and he would dispute with heretics. And if he found them guilty, he would burn them at the stake. That's what Dominic did, that wonderful St. Dominic. Just a wonderful godly man. And I'm sorry, that was the sarcasm I said I wouldn't use. No, he was a wicked, hateful, evil man who would have killed you and me. Okay? So he had, a, he had a, an army with him under the authority of a man named Simon de Montfort. And they had about 300,000 troops. And they went and marched against the Bible believers in France. They ended up in a city called Beziers. And they, were, they had rushed into the city. There were 60,000 people inside this city. Well, they were able to, to take the city without killing anyone. And so the Pope's representative was there. And Montfort said, there are, there are Christians and heretics in there. In other words, there are Catholics and also Bible believers in there. So what should we do? And the Pope's representative, Innocent III, was the Pope, his representative said, kill them all. The Lord will know those who are his own. And so on one afternoon, they killed, under Dominic and de Montfort, 60,000 people in one afternoon. That's innocent. He used his authority as the vicar of Christ, his title as the vicar of Christ to accomplish that. So when we hear that title, the vicar of Christ, that is the authority that popes have used throughout history to annihilate people whether it was Baptists like in, in Beziers or whether it was Protestants like the Huguenots in France, they, used them, they, they killed 70,000 Huguenots in one afternoon. They invited them to a conference and said that we will discuss these things with you. And when they got there, they killed them all. 70,000. 70,000 as Christ's representative on this earth. So you say, Pastor, why would this happen? Well, it's very simple. When you are defending an earthly kingdom, you must do it physically. When you're defending a spiritual kingdom, you'll do it spiritually. Jesus Christ said very clearly, Jesus Christ said, my kingdom is in the hearts of man. When we talk to people, we persuade them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't threaten them with their lives because that person isn't going to answer to me. They're going to answer to God. Is that right? Every man. If you're saved, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. If you're lost, then you'll stand before the great white throne judgment. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before a great white throne. From before whose face the, the earth, and I saw a lamb, before whose face the earth and the heavens fled away because there was found no place for them. And there's only one judgment, death and hell. All that were in them give up the dead. They stand before the great white throne judgment. And the verdict is simply the lake of fire for eternity. That's it. We're all going to stand before God. So what do we do? We tell people, hey, you're going to stand before God someday. Jesus Christ wants you to be saved. Believe in Him. Believe in Him. And you say, well, you're not perfect. Man, isn't that the truth? I'm just a sinner. Jesus saved me because He loves sinners. I wish my life better matched what I believe. But my life isn't the issue. 
Jesus Christ died on the cross. Amen? That's the difference. I don't stand here before you saying that I'm perfect doctrinally. I learn new things literally every week of my life. I'm not the authority on the Word of God. The Word of God is the authority on me. And so what we do is like it says in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians chapter 5. But we say, I've been reconciled to God. And He's given me a ministry where He says, I'm His ambassador. And I'm given a ministry of reconciliation where I say, be ye reconciled to God. You, come back to God. Come to Jesus Christ. He wants to save you. You see, that's what we do. It's different than sitting on a throne and saying, come and bow down before me and kiss my feet, kiss my ring. That's just not biblical Christianity. It's just not. So what do we do? What do we do? We try and explain to people from the Word of God when they ask us about the papacy. We just show them from the Word of God, look, salvation is not in any man. No man can give you forgiveness of sins. Only Jesus Christ can. Amen. I think of a story my dad would tell as he was preaching of a little old lady who was getting ready to die. The priest came in and said, can I give you forgiveness of sins? She said, can I see your hands? And he said, okay. And she took his hands and she said, no nail prints. You can't forgive me. Binding in heaven and binding on earth, what is that? That through the message of the gospel, people will be saved or lost. That's it. That's it. The Bible tells us very clearly in Revelation chapter 3 that Jesus Christ is the one that's given the keys. And He'll open and no man shuts and shuts and no man opens. The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 1 that He has given the keys of death and hell. Those are the keys that Jesus Christ has. What keys were the apostles given? The same thing that we're given. The message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Those are the keys that we have. You want to know something? Those keys still work. Amen. We still have that authority. Jesus Christ said, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach the gospel. Amen? That's what we're supposed to do. That's it. So what do we do when we're confronted with this false system? Well, first thing that we do is we just tell people that Jesus loves them. And He died on the cross to pay for their sins. If they want to get into details about the system, we need to be very careful that we're not offensive in the way that we speak to them. But we demonstrate from Scripture that it is an illegitimate, man-made office. And when anyone... Let, let me tell you something. Go to John chapter 17. I'll finish here. John 17. Look at verse 11. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. Who is Jesus Christ calling the Holy Father? That's God, right? This is the only place in the Bible this is used. To use this of any man on earth is blasphemy. It's blasphemy. 
Uh, I have a quote from John Paul II where someone asked him about this. And he said, yes, it is uh, a violation of Scripture, but we do it anyway. Now, that's not an exact quote, but that's what he said. See, they recognize, they even recognize that it violates Scripture. But Scripture is not their authority. Their tradition is their authority. Our authority is the Word of God. Amen. Amen. And where this becomes so important is that we're born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Amen? Why? Because the grass withereth and the flower fadeth, but the Word of our God shall stand forever, forever. See, my authority for salvation is not based in any man. It's based on the simple Word of God. We need to know. We need to have these answers. We need to be confident in giving an answer to someone who's wrapped up in a lost system. We're to be light, but sometimes giving that light can be painful. Amen? It's not comfortable confronting people. We've got to do it. We've got to do it. And what a great time. What a great time. They're going to be having this papal... uh, 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 conclave that's coming up, uh, the Carmelango, who is the Secretary of State for the Vatican City, Vatican Papal State, he'll head it up, and more than a hundred uh, cardinals will come together. I think it's going to be around March 15th is when it's going to start. Uh, they're going to come together and they're going to vote on the next man who will be the head of Christ's church. Imagine that. Imagine that. I remember when the last one happened and. Albert Moeller was asked, president of Southern Seminary, he was asked, uh, what is your desire? What would you like to see happen for this next pope? And he said, well, I hope he is the last one because it's an illegitimate office. Amen? Look, we don't rely on traditions of men. We don't rely on worldly systems. We believe in the Word of God. And the Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. Amen? Man, I'm so glad we have God's Word. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you're trusting in your baptism or your good works or your church membership or anything like that to go to heaven, you're going to go to hell. I don't say that with any joy, but I've got to tell you that. I want you to go to heaven. So does Jesus Christ. And so He wants to give you the free gift of eternal life. That comes simply by believing in Him. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Amen. What a wonderful hope. What a wonderful promise. Can I ask you a question? Does that sound hateful? That's not hateful at all. That's liberating. It's the glorious gospel. Let's tell as many people as we can. What a great opportunity we have right now. If you're here this morning and you've not trusted Christ alone for your eternal life, don't leave here without the Lord. Don't leave here wrapped up in some false system. I asked you earlier, how many of you have people that you love that are in the Catholic system? Would you raise your hand again. They need the gospel of Jesus Christ given to them in meekness and in fear, given to them in love, and then relying on the Holy Spirit of God to change their hearts. Amen? Don't be weary in well-doing. We know that in due season we'll reap if we faint not. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Let's tell somebody. Um, we, we understand that 
Catholicism is trying to unite the world's religions under the authority of the Pope. We all understand that, right? I don't know if we realize just how far that's gone. So I want to read to you paragraph 841. You can write this down and look it up yourself. Paragraph 841 from the, the Roman Catholic Catechism of the Faith. Okay? This is the current catechism of the Roman Catholic Church. I'm, I'm quoting now. The Church's relationship with the Muslims. Quote, The plan of salvation also includes those who acknowledge the Creator. In the first place amongst whom are the Muslims. These profess to hold the faith of Abraham, and together with us they adore the one merciful God, mankind's judge, on the last day. So they're acknowledging, because of their worship of the Creator, that Muslims are saved. That's in the Roman Catholic Catechism. Have you, how many of you have wondered how there can be a one-world church under the Catholics when the Muslims are so strong? How many of you have wondered that? They're just coming together. Just coming together. Um, this is what the last Pope, Benedict XVI, said. This is prepared by the Pontifical Council for Justice and Peace. And it's a document entitled, Toward the Reforming of the International Financial and Monetary Systems in the Context of Global Public Authority. And what was that? That was the Pope calling for a world bank. Because of the collapse of the financial system and what it had done in third world countries, he believes there needs to be a one world economic system. That's what the last Pope called for. Um, he said this, In fact, one can see an emerging requirement for a body that will carry out the functions of a kind of central world bank that regulates the flow and system of monetary exchanges similar to the national, national central banks. That's what this last pope said. He also said this, um, To manage the global economy, to revive eco economies hit by the crisis, to avoid any deterioration of the present crisis and the greater imbalances that would result, to bring about integral and timely disarmament, food, uh, food security, and peace, to guarantee the protection of the environment, and to regulate migration. For all this, there is urgent need of a true world political authority, as my predecessor, blessed John the Twenty-Third, indicated some years ago. John the Twenty-Third said that in a speech in 1963 in saying that the United Nations was probably the greatest organization to bring about this one-world government. Now, I know that there are people that think that when we make statements like this that we're conspiracy freaks. We're just reading their words. So when you have evangelical friends who call you a kook for believing these things, you need to understand that they're deceived. There is going to be a one-world government. There is going to be a one-world political system, one-world economic system. The Bible makes that very clear. Let's be kooks and believe the Bible. Amen. And understand that there is a worldwide religious system all pushing toward the socialization of the government and the economy. Is that right? That's where we're headed.